And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hi, everybody. This is Harmony. I'm reaching out before the episode today to talk to you a little bit about the book that you're going to hear about from the author called On Opium, Pain, Pleasure, and Other Matters of Substance by Carlin Zwarnstein. Carlin Zwarnstein told me that the audiobook version of this book is officially released, and this is a nonfiction book. It is beautifully written. But if you're like me and sometimes flipping through a book, especially a nonfiction book, feels like a big lift, the audiobook version could be a great alternative for you. She gave me an excerpt to read from the book because though the conversation that you're about to hear is certainly intensive, it's really hard to explain all of the context behind something like the opium epidemic or opioid use and the way our social policies affect it and affect the users of it in an hour-long conversation. This is a wonderful book and I really do hope that you all get a chance to read it. So here is the excerpt. It might have started when I first noticed myself lurching stiffly as I walked in the sleepless weeks after my first child was born, or earlier when back pain plagued me at my desk job. Or maybe the story only really begins when I was first diagnosed years after that. But I'd rather start this story a little later, when after some years of being clawed constantly by stiffness and pain, I began trying to claw back the life pain took from me. It's my story, so I get to choose. We'll start there, in 2015. Today I'm flying from Toronto to New York City. Travel, formerly my great delight, has lately become something of an ordeal. My neck cranes forward, pushed by stiff, hunching shoulders. The muscles at the front of my neck are as short and tight as steel cables. A dull burn at the back of my neck radiates down to my tailbone. My lower back feels unstable. An oddly unbearable sensation, as if my spinal column were inadequate to support the rest of me. I have a spine disease called ankylosing spondylitis. One of the particular torments of this condition is an inability to find comfort either sitting down or standing up. Seated in the departure lounge, I shift and wriggle in my seat. I take a little pill bottle from the pocket of my coat and hold it in my hand. Through the window, the water in the harbor is slate blue. The financial district buildings beside it, gray and blue as well, reflecting dull sky and dull water. It's like being in a black and white movie, or a kyanotype, rather blue scale. What a November day but I am going on holiday. I've left my loved ones at home for the weekend, and now for the next six hours, I'm about to leave pain behind as well, along with its accompanying stress, sorrow, and existential angst. I chase the pale yellow pill, an opioid called tramadol with a bitter sip of coffee. With that, I hope that you get a great little taste of the book, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of our interview. Okay, bye!
Hello, everybody. This is Harmony, and I am very excited because today we are talking about a book called On Opium, Pain, Pleasure, and Other Matters of Substance by Carlin Zorenstein. And I actually get to talk to her today. Maggie is not with us because Maggie has a migraine and needed some resting time to deal with that. But we were very excited about this book when Carlin's press agent reached out to us. It is about opium, as the title suggests, and it's also about chronic pain. So we're excited to talk to you today. Carlin, do you want to give us all a little bit of a description, uh, a short description on who you are and a little bit of a brief summary on what this book is about? Sure. I'm a writer. I live in Toronto, Canada. I've been a journalist since I published my first article when I was 15. So I've been doing that for a long time. But this book started from my own personal experience of chronic pain and trying to write out of that. And the first part of this book is very strongly about chronic pain and the relief of pain. And then after writing that, as it was published as a very short book, I started getting a little back in with pain better under control. I started getting back into the journalism I'd done before and started to see parallels and analogies and ways in which my very inward experience connects with some of the big issues of poverty and inequality and inequities and not affecting me, but racism and, and many forms of oppression that it really intersects so strongly in the lives of people who use drugs. So the second part of the book, second and third parts of the book came out of that. And it's a book that combines all of those things to look at opioids and pain from different perspectives. That's amazing. Thank you so much for telling us that description. So we're really excited about this book because we haven't talked at all about drug use. We've only recently started to talk a little bit about chronic pain and explore what that looks like through literature. And as you know, we are a feminist podcast. And so we wanted to know whether you consider your book feminist and why. Yeah, um, because I because I'm feminist, because it's not I think it's a book that tries I try to look through my own eyes at reality. And I don't and a lot of that means looking at power dynamics that exist in society and how they affect me personally and how they affect affect the people I talk with. So trying to go from the really micro and to the macro and a feminist analysis is if you're going to look at reality, at the reality of power dynamics, it's, it's unavoidable. So it's my very personal experience. It's also a, a real thing that exists in the world, whether you, uh, whatever side of that you're on. That's a very good point. And that's one of the reasons why we were so excited to talk to you about this book, especially because it's not something I think I hear a lot in feminist circles talked about either chronic pain or its relationship to substance. So my friend Maggie, who is our co-host, wrote this question, and she was really struck by, in, throughout this book, you talk a lot about romanticism and artistry. And so she really wanted to know how your quest to live a romantic lifestyle in that sort of romanticism artist genre in the 21st century relates to your work on the intersections between drugs, substance abuse, and pain. I think it relates in in trying to Put together a whole self in this. So when I do journalism, you're looking, I'm looking at a lot of these oppressions and sort of ism issues, different isms. And I guess I wanted to bring alongside that 
imagination and, and the bread and roses thing, the real stuff of daily life and also the imagination. But I think, I mean, fundamentally or originally, it comes from my own experience of being in pain that stopped me from engaging properly with life that made it was distracting and impossible to, to look out on the world even no matter how hard I would try. And so you're very stuck and very feeling like all sorts of ambitions and desires are, are blocked. And I think is really an attempt, as I was writing that first part, that first book, I was really trying to find meaning. I was trying to put in this little short thing, everything that's exciting or interesting or important to me, the things that are big dreams and, and big feelings. And those are often left out of more political discussion. They're, they're, it's very personal. It's not everyone's opinion. It's also, I guess I was trying through this book to bring out some of the ambiguities and the uncomfortable things of, so the, the first part of this book is, it's called The New Confessions, and it's a riff on Thomas de Quincey's 1821, I think, book, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. And in that, he was the first person really to romanticize his own. He took a prescription, I'm not a prescription medication, but a medication that was given medically. It wasn't controversial at all for him to use it, but he romanticized it and made a whole, you know, created this whole archetype of the capital R romantic drug user. And that's got so much garbage in it when you think of the, the real suffering that exists for people who use, use drugs, the real suffering that drug use relate to. And, and so I wanted to keep that there because it is actually a reason that people use drugs is, is to feel good. And it also to sometimes to indulge in some of that is fantasy or imagination, imaginative feelings. And, and definitely that, that search for meaning is important to me. And so, and another aspect, I guess, is the subjectivity of all of this. When I describe what it feels like to use a prescription opioid, and when I describe the experience of, of drugs, it's so subjective. I'm not I'm not injecting heroin and there's no way anyone outside me could say what, whether it's true or not. The same as pain, the experience of pain is it ultimately is subjective. And if you're not going to believe what the person's saying, like, we don't know. I don't, what I think I feel is very, no one else can, can determine that. So I think that's part of it as well. Trying to bring in that, that aspect of fantasy and not, and leaving it in there. I don't know what is all of this, what is true and what isn't. Wow. Okay. I want to ask some follow-up questions to that. So I'm, I'm not a scholar of the romantic movement and Maggie, Maggie kind of is a little bit. So that was part of her interest in, in your writing. So what I'm, I'm hearing you say is, is that this romanticism and this relationship helped make it a little bit more personal for you, your description, or it helped frame the writing in a more personal way. Is that... I think so. I I was prescribed after a series of other medications for the spine disease that I have. Sort of reached the end of the line, was not managing. Doctor prescribed a mild opioid. Just gave me a name. I didn't know what it was. I went home and I googled it. I find out. Oh my god, it's an it's an opioid. Am I going to die? Is this does this mean I'm dying? Since then, I I've used morphine. I've used hydromorphone, and so it's kind of been you know deromanticized for me in a way. But the there was both a fear associated with that and a realization that this connects me in some way, in some romantic and dangerous way to a whole history of people who have used opium derived or inspired drugs and written about them very beautifully and very interestingly. And again, in a situation where I wanted to write, wanted to write fiction, wanted to write literature and was really, really unable to do much of anything in my life, that 
idea of being part of an inheritance. I, I as a serious reader, I just I've what I've wanted to write about has been literature and and, and to be able to connect to a mo- whole movement of that and the whole aesthetic is is beautiful. And I, I don't want to have to crush it because of the negative things that happen. And it, it's been interesting to hear from other people, from people who use illicit drugs as well, that that does resonate for them. That that movement of the, the romantic romantic movement was interesting. It just there's a lot there about individualism, about passion, about the ups and downs of life. That's very meaningful to someone in pain when you're you're dealing with that. That's I I'm having trouble articulating my feelings about that, but I I think I I think I completely agree, and that did come across well in your in your work. This idea of being of having an inheritance of using opioids and then being a part of this history. And I do like that that almost puts a sort of positive or romantic or fanciful fanciful twist on your experience with this medication. So I think it's so important that I I really tried to get a balance that I don't know if everyone will think I, I struck properly. There's, there's a lot in there about the harms of drug use, the way both the harms of prohibition, which is what I emphasize more, but also the the actual effects of of, medic, of drugs, and also medications. And I, there's no romanticizing suffering. There's no romanticizing the Sacklers or any of that. What I want is to be able to keep hold of all of my experiences, including the imaginative ones, and including the positive. That doesn't mean saying that the opioid crisis has been positive. It doesn't mean saying that that drug use is positive even it's not that's not it but it's trying to hold everything together i i think that very much comes across and kind of gets to a larger point that i caught throughout the story which was that we have to look at this with a larger context that it can't just be one story or or one message about opioids. It can't just be about overdoses necessarily, or it can just be about what the romantic era writes about it. We were wondering if you had any advice on how we and our listeners can be more compassionate friends and supporters towards people in our lives who experience chronic pain. That's very hard. I think including people, recognizing that for many people who live in pain, the best way to manage it is to sharply reduce the scope of your life. And it's something that I wrestle with throughout, throughout the book, the frustration of needing to have a fairly planned, scheduled, limited life that allowed where I, like during the pandemic, I did so well by having reduced mobility, reduced demands. And it really, it really was physically good for me. So my ability to interact socially requires people to come to me. It requires people to believe that online communications are real relationship are real parts of a real relationship it's it's hurtful when people dismiss that so i think that's the the biggest thing not trying to solve things either understanding that you're you're dealing with something that changes from day to day but is sort of constant so a very hurtful or relationship ending thing has been people who get bored with your suffering and start to see it as a negative attitude that I'm still suffering 15 years later the way I was the way I was originally when it was of interest. When you have an ongoing thing, no one's bringing you flowers. And the friends who don't coddle me, the friends who are willing to bring their negative things to me as well so that we can you know, talk about 
the ups and downs of each of our lives, but to do that in an equal way where, where what I continue to experience is still, is still of interest is just seems to me part of friendship. So I, I guess, I guess that. That's very good advice. As you were talking, I was thinking about some of my relationships and I was like, oh yeah, people's suffering. <laughs> you still need to treat it as valid, even if it's ongoing. So thank you. This book really works to destigmatize both the use of drugs and opioids, and you work to challenge every common myth and bit of information. In particular for me, I I used to be a local journalist, was this misbelief about first responders coming into contact with fentanyl and overdosing simply by touching it. I had believed that because I had interviewed first responders, and I don't remember if anyone fact-checked it because it happened quite a few years ago. So. This idea of misinformation was really important to me. And I really, as a writer, you seem really good at countering misbelief because I know that I read this book and was very easily able to accept all of the things that you were telling me. So I was wondering what your strategy for countering misbelief, like the need for abstinence-based drug policies, is when it's so deeply ingrained in our societal systems. Because as you may know, sometimes facts aren't enough for people when it comes to things that are so emotional? A lot of, of the standard media line is very, reduces a complex reality. And I guess I try to con- counteract it with facts. So the thing about abstinence, for example, there's two really good studies that I, that I end up citing a lot of about 40,000 people on, one is on treatment paths, looks at six different treatment pathways for opioid, opioid use disorder that are available in the U.S., and it finds of all the like 12 step inpatient, all of that, the only ones that rely that prevent overdose and hospitalization and overdose death are methadone and buprenorphine, which are opioids themselves. It doesn't test other, other methods that are, are available outside of the US, like prescription heroin. But those tend to, in small studies, those tend to do extraordinarily well at restoring people's quality of life, their participation in, in life, because they're no longer focused on dealing with withdrawal. But, but within the U.S., those medication-based options without counsel- counseling is not a necessary part of it. The facts are that those prevent people from dying. So, so that kind of factual stuff is, is helpful. Also, a similar study showing that in all forms of inpatient treatment, which tends to involve taking people off whatever they're on and detox, results in higher relapses, hospitalization, overdoses, then met again, outpatient medication-based treatment. So that's just, a, it's just factual. It doesn't have to do with whether opioids are good or bad. It doesn't, yes, they are dangerous. Also, yes, fentanyl is used to put toddlers for toddlers in surgery safely. So they're just, they're just facts about it. And they're not, there's a moral weight that unfortunately doesn't just involve a, a moral weight but is attached to certain facts that aren't, that are not fact, like certain bits of information that are not accurate. So it's not that fentanyl isn't dangerous, but drug companies spent decades and decades trying to find a way to get fentanyl to go through your skin. That's the fentanyl patch. It doesn't, it's not an easy thing for it to happen. You simply, it's not, it's not going to happen. So I guess I just try to count, I try to bring the, this sort of subjective anecdotal experiences and then kind of scaffold them with, with actual facts and with larger trends and particularly look, looking at power dynamics so you can see, okay, why does why is this said as opposed to that? Why does the, do these myths continue and continue? And, and you, it, even 
within very progressive communities, there's just because of factual errors, people don't recognize some of the the they they reckon they get a different a different perspective than than is accurate. I love that you're bringing in power structures and talking about how important context is and the need for scaffolding, because I I do some work on misinformation and how we deal with that, and that seems to be what what the research I've done at least has has told us. I also kind of along the same lines as a journalist, you really question where you fit into this story on opiate use sometimes throughout this book. And one of the things I really appreciate while reading your book is that we get an intimate look into your thought process and biases. And yet the story itself doesn't center on you. You mentioned your children's father, your friendships, your cat, but this larger story still focuses on opiate use in a broader context. And so I just wanted to know why it was important for you that you placed yourself into this story on opiate use and why this isn't just a memoir or a more newsy account where your experiences are left out of the story. Well, I guess it's because it started from my 2016 little book that was so you're stuck in my head for, (laughs) I don't know, for 30,000 words. It's small. And that's probably enough, right? So after that, I do start looking outward, but I guess I'm very conscious of the different levels of privilege that I have. So I am someone who take, I take a prescription opioid. It works for me. I, although there's always fear about whether that might suddenly unilaterally change, there definitely is. I do have privileged access to treatment that works for me for to generally compassionate medical care and evidence-based medical, like guideline compliant medical care. I have stable, a stable home. I don't, I don't, I'm white and therefore don't have to deal with a huge range of, of prejudices in, in pain care, or even in, even if I was using recreational drugs, my experience would be very different from people of color. There's all kinds of ways in which, in which I'm privileged. I couldn't, I sort of couldn't see a way to write about other people without it being exploited without situating myself really clearly in it. So people know where I'm coming from and are able to look at the, you only see conclusions through my eyes. And that's the case with any writer, any piece of writing, but it often, it typically doesn't show that. So I'm trying to open that up so people can see, okay, this is how I got to these conclusions. And you can then draw your own conclusions about whether you, whether I'm convincing or not. But I think it's important that you see where I'm where I'm coming from. And in the process of this book, actually, I tried to show my development as well in understanding. I didn't start out where I ended, I think. I definitely saw that throughout the book, <laughs> especially when you were talking about you, you referenced the study on marshmallows and the kid who eats the marshmallow first and doesn't wait for a marshmallow is supposedly supposed to have less life outcomes and It was a great learning experience that you included in the book. And I really appreciated that because for me, it did seem like when I started, I was like, oh, this person is so enlightened. And I felt a little bit bad. I was like, how do, how do I get that enlightened? Why aren't I there yet? (laughs) At the end of one of your essays, the essay monster, you ask this rhetorical question, really, who is the monster when discussing how the media treats and describes illicit drug users? And to me, one of the overarching monsters seen here is capitalism. Would you be able to talk a little bit about the relationship of capitalism, classism, and opioids for our audience? I know it's a very big lift, so. Yeah, I, I <laughs> deal with them in, that in a couple of the, the chapters in that, that part of 
of the book. Capitalism grew up very tightly with prohibition. So depending on what country you're talking about, around 1910, opium was prohibited. And before that, the, the relationship that, that different that people of different countries had to, to drug use was very different. And um, excessive drug use might be more of a, it was used, opium was used medically in small doses in a relatively unproblematic way. It was around the turn of the century heavily marketed, and that results in some of the same issues that we have now, where there's a profit motive that results in the dangers and, and harms and risks of something being being hidden. But overall, it was like a vice, the way drinking too much is a vice as opposed to a crime. So there's, there's one very amazing book called Narcotic Cultures that, that gave me a, a lot of this, this understanding. It looks at primary source documents relating to opium use in China before and after the wave of waves of prohibition. And it shows the way an entirely new class was created along with criminalization. So once, so people who are wealthy have always, always had access to whatever drugs they want with very little, very little impact, negative impact. But once it became prohibited, poor people would be arrested, sent to treatment centers that involve various forms of torture, and then sent back out without, you know, in various ways, prevented from earning a living, from participating in society. The same as happens now, it has happened with cannabis in the US for decades. So entire lives can be ruined and, and community families separated, communities destroyed, and that, that process happened with opium. Where before, yes, there were, I mean, if, you, if you'd controlled marketing a little bit more and you'd, a few other things, it wouldn't have been such an issue. But by, they created this thing that became the stereotype of the drug user that we now attach all sorts of beliefs that people really strongly believe, including in progressive communities, often because of individual family, difficult family relationships, where there's a, the, the problem is a lack of context and insight into the ways in which the way the system in the U.S. works now in the same way, forces certain behaviors or incentivizes certain behaviors from people and certain responses with the idea of tough love, with the, the idea, with lack of access to a drug that people, once you're dependent, they physically need that, that drug to be well. So, and then the stereotypes of, that are often actually describing people in withdrawal, not people on, on, a, on the, particular medic, the particular drug. So there's this whole set of things about drug users being irresponsible, lying, lying compulsively, theft, association with crime that are not based in reality. And we can see that when you see the way during the overdose crisis, people, I don't save somebody's life every week, but people who use drugs are literally saving each other's lives with naloxone or with the chest compressions and oxygen. They're bringing people back. So that level of care, or, the, or when, you have, when people are stabilized with access to, to their drug on, on substitution programs or withdrawal preventing drugs like methadone, and they're, they're able to work beyond the constraints that the system still puts on people of wasting huge amounts of time and huge amounts of surveillance. People are able to work jobs, to have family lives. To, it's, the, the criminalization forces a whole range of behaviors that are not intrinsic to the drug, and it didn't exist before before criminalization. And we've seen that happen with, with a range of other drugs. So that's what I try to get at. That I think the profit motive has been, the, the combination of profit motive on the one hand with, with both legal and illegal drugs, 
and criminalization on the other are two factors that distort the harms and benefits of a particular drug. And that's something that's grown up with capitalism at the, essentially at the same time of the industrial revolution and then prohibition. So they, they've sort of, they've had a, an inseparable parallel and the conditions that capitalism, especially advanced capitalism now forces on people incentivize drug use and incentivize the need for escape. Thank you for describing that. I know that I, I run in fairly progressive circles and I live in New York City and I'm a young person. So I know a lot of people who seem to have a progressive idea about drugs, but for some reason, opioid use is always left out of that and still demonized even among other drug users in my experience. So that's one of the reasons I really appreciate this book. And even though it's so basic, reading this book helped me better understand, oh, wait, we need to include everyone in this conversation. It can't just be about pot or shrooms. We need to decriminalize everything. Yeah. I keep an eye on the commercialization of of hallucinogens and psychedelics because it's going the same way as cannabis has in Canada, where the, the people who are criminalized are not the ones benefiting from it and where there's a distorting effect of marketing and, uh, and all of that. Oh yeah. I was going to say that I, I, I describe in the book going to Portugal and talking to people involved in the right, who about the system in Portugal of decriminalization, where all substances are decriminalized. They're not they're not legalized, but they're decriminalized. And drug user activists describe to me the way, although that system is vastly better than what you have in the U.S. or what we have in Canada, it is there's still flaws. And one of them is that people as as the system did the decriminalization did exactly what it's supposed to do, what it does, which is move drug use to more of a health and, and social issue and re- vastly reduce harms like bloodborne diseases and, and things like that. Injection drug use drops. As injection drug use dro- drops, people who continue to inject are forced into the shadows, into the sidelines and be- have become more marginalized. So it's just sort of, I found that was illustrative of, of the way in which even as you do some things, different groups can continue to be pushed to the side if they're not properly included or not given the opportunity to to be included. I think kind of along those lines, one of the things that you described about opioid use in particular, and this also, you, you also described it and related it to chronic pain, was a theme of isolation. And you talked about how people that you knew in your community who were opioid users already kind of felt isolated in the way that many of us felt isolated during the pandemic or people with chronic pain, right? Because as you mentioned earlier, you need people to come to you and and to appreciate the importance of online relationships. So I kind of really wanted to know why isolation is an important contextual factor to consider when talking about the way that we relate to opiate use and why that was such a prevalent theme throughout your book. I mean, others have addressed this. Johan Harry, John Harry talks about, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. And I think that's simplistic. I don't, I don't think it's accurate, but I, there is something to it. One thing that struck me very strongly as coming from pain. So as a person who started writing out of pain, and you know, I talk a lot about my friends in that first part and as a positive thing, but I am, they're really, you're really stuck in your own head, partly because of many of the practical impacts of pain, but also just the way it, it, by its nature, it 
it distracts you from everything else and makes it very hard to focus outward. And then because of the ways ableism or just lack of understanding can, can result in you being isolated. I was struck very strongly by the way drug users, I mean, not everyone, obviously, but there are very strong drug user organizing communities. There's people, like I, I mentioned, the people saving each other's lives, but also people with a huge sense of, of community in a way that chronic pain patients haven't had. Chronic pain patients have started finding each other on the internet, but it's often been a, it's been a, they're people who, because of the way chronic pain strikes, people don't necessarily come from some understanding of, of pol- like a political understanding or a power understanding. They just suddenly find that their lives are being reduced by pain. And they're often angry because they see the way the world responds to that. And so you have these angry people on the internet, you know, mad at the, about being identified with, with addicts, with drug users, and without a political analysis that I, I think as that, that I think that's changing. People are starting to recognize that the same that attitudes of prohibition and criminalization of people on the far end, the poor people who use illicit drugs is affecting pain patient access to, to medicines that work when you, that should be used as a last resort, but should be accessible as a last resort. So there's a sort of a political education that I think is part of coming out of isolation. And I've been watching as people, pain patients start to form community, real communities of support. And also as that comes across lines to people who use, use illicit drugs. But yeah, I was very struck by this by how there actually is a huge amount of solidarity. And that's the, that really is the opposite of, of a sense of, of being completely stuck in your own suffering that can occur with both addiction and, and with pain. And I'm also seeing that in the participation of drug user organizers starting to, to identify with the disability community and to see that often they're the same people and that they also have common cause and that one cause should be everyone's cause, that no one's free till everyone's free. I love that. I love, I had never before reading your book considered the relationship between addiction and disability, but reading your book, it did seem really clear to me the fact that everyone or most people are suffering from something and people who are looking to medicate in any way, right? Even from the people in my life who might not even be opiate users, the people I know who are chronic cannabis users are looking to medicate themselves in some way. It seemed a lot clearer. My thoughts aren't very articulate about it because I'm still very new to disability studies, but I appreciated that connection. Me too. I mean, through the course of the book, I know as I'm connecting with more disability activists or disability justice activists, I'm learning to have a more sophisticated understanding of it. But I I tried to kind of expose my ignorance a little bit that it's it's been hard. It's been a real, a really slow process to learn to to identify my I have a degenerative spine disease. It's not always, I mean, it's somewhat visible in that my spine has a funny shape, but you can't always tell that. And certainly you can't see the pain. So it's taken me a very long time to see myself as disabled or as have as that being relevant to my life. You see it as a as a psychological outlook as opposed to an issue of with accommodations, I can be a full participant in society. And if I fight for those for myself, I need to fight for those for other people across the range of things. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your ability to articulate it. I think along those lines, so you, you've kind of already started to, to touch about this, this idea of shared community. So I guess 
you've already you've already talked a little bit about it, the importance of shared community when it comes to opiate use and chronic pain. But I'm wondering if you have any any advice on how we can better bridge that community. Throughout your book, we start to see various people that you've talked to, people who are chronic pain patients, connect with people who are also seeking drugs for some sort of pain that hasn't been diagnosed, I guess, illicit drug use and and seeing them bridge community. And so I'm guessing for our listeners, do you have any advice about how that becomes more accessible for people? Because as you said before, some people come into these online communities without that power analysis. So how, how do we bridge that? How do we get people to understand parts of that power analysis without sitting them down in a college classroom? So I was talking to a a wonderful drug user activist, a methadone activist, Garth Mullins, who I mentioned a couple of times in the book and for an article that I'm writing about disability justice. And he was describing to me a new group that he's come together with with disability activists in BC, in British Columbia to, to form called the, I think it's called the Stop Killing Us, Stop Fucking Killing Us Coalition. And it's combined people who died during the heat dome in like disability disabled people who died during the heat dome in Vancouver and in BC with people who are dying of, of fentanyl over illicit fentanyl overdose because of a system that means that they have no idea what is in their drugs. And because of a system that is incentivizing ever stronger, more potent, easier to smuggle drugs and who are fighting for access to safe supply and legalization. So those are really could be sometimes there is overlap, but sometimes those are very disparate groups. And what they've what they're coming together under is this idea of necropolitics, the idea that we live in a in systems that are consigning the poor and the otherwise marginalized to really miserable existences with to a, a degree of inequality that has not ever existed in the world and to now start increasingly a material, like not having the very basics of housing and stable, safe housing, access to food, water, the things, the very basics that people need, education. And the sort of the end point of that is death. And so these are people coming together also to fight against expansion of medical assistance in dying laws that exist in Canada to include people who are not at imminent risk of death, imminent likelihood of death. So it's an, it's, a whole range of issues that would be typically described in the news as, as very separate, but it's there people who are doing a, a power analysis where they're saying, okay, there's, there's a whole bunch of us at the bottom and we're separated by the idea that we're, that our issues are not the same and that our issue, uh, that it's a zero sum game, that our issues are not compatible. And instead trying to seek solidarity a, across those lines and to recognize that there is a very small minority of people who have done very well in the pandemic, who are profiting from housing crisis, who are fine with, with people dying of overdose and so persistently, persistently refuse policies that are actually going to be effective in favor of law and order policies that are not effective in present, preventing death, but do increase police budgets. Um, so people who start to, to see across the range of issues to see that there's a, there's a common foe and a common a common struggle for a better society for more people. So I think articulating it in these different ways, like like this kind of necropolitics idea is one way of helping to educate people. But then, I mean, it's it's hard. It's hard to get things, to publish things that are, are factual, but take this stance. 
it's hard to get attention for them. It's not as sexy a, a framing. I'm not sure why, but it's not. So there's a lot, of, it's an uphill struggle. So it sounds like to me that you're talking a little bit about finding the places of solidarity among different groups of people and focusing on that. So is that correct, first of yeah. all? Okay, yeah. cool. And then I guess also, I wonder if you talked about how that's not sexy to frame. I wonder if you're doing that a little, that work a little bit in your book, not to give you too much congratulations, although I love this book, but simply by connecting people's stories, by making it more personal. I wonder if that, do you think that makes it a little bit sexier or more accessible for people? I, mean, I, hope, so. I hope so. I like it when people say it is. Um, <laughs> the original, when I sold the original book, it was the framing that I, that I used was I'm start, I'm stopping this immune suppressant that I was taking. And so my only way of handling the, the degenerative spine disease I have is the opioid that I've used occasionally. And how long is it going to take me to do the classics, you know, downhill slope or spiral into addiction, like those phrases are tropes that are hauled out so easily, so lazily. Anyway, it didn't happen. It ended up being a, a portrait of a nervous breakdown due to pain that was relieved by, by better, better care. But it, I guess I tried to use that sexy framing. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm hoping that the subjective nature of what I did, and then com- attaching it to factual to facts and context, I hope that that makes it accessible. I've tried to be to be very accessible in what I write and and very visceral, so that people are taken through the experience of pain, through the experience of pain relief, and also through the experience of meeting people who are very articulate, ordinary people, and also use illicit drugs. I'm not seeking to romanticize the drugs themselves. I'm not seeking to say that that everyone you know that everyone should have access to heroin or it should be not there's very specific models that need to be developed, but we need to reach a point where we get rid of a whole long history of prohibition and criminalization before that, before a society can come together and say, what exactly what model are we going to use? Yeah. Does that answer it? I think so. I think you definitely talked a lot. I think you answered my question. Yes. And I, I did see that in your book too. You repeatedly say that opioid use might not be the best treatment for everyone. And you're talking, you seem to talk about it, not just with physical pain, but with mental health pain too, particularly when you're talking about some of the illicit drug users that you've interviewed. Yeah. People are certainly not exclusively using it for that. People use it for a pleasure. It's just straight up pleasure. And people use it. It really struck me how much everyone I spoke to who uses illicit drugs, who's identified as a drug user or a drug addict, how often those are people who actually have a pre-existing chronic pain condition that was not treated properly. So, so that definitely did strike me. And for, for pain, it certainly is not a first line treatment. There's no, I try to just, I also describe withdrawal and reasons why dependence is something you really don't want to seek out. However, it's the best in my life. It's the best balance of, of harms and, and benefits. So I think it's a very serious thing that people should understand but it's not, it's not a moral failing and it's not a disease and it's not a disorder and it has benefits. Thank you. I appreciate that. My next question, trying to get back on track here, because we just had a very, a very fun interlude. So we wanted to know if you have any thoughts on how we can support individuals in countries whose policies and cultures related to prescriptions and illicit drugs have been radically changed because of 
the U.S. and our colonialistic tactics in relation to the drug war? I know that's a very big question. (laughs) That's a big one. I'm not sure to what extent that's a thing. I know there's a lot of concern, particularly among physicians, of the potential for drug companies to export reckless prescribing to other countries. In response to that, the US, the UK, for example, has cracked down on prescriptions in such a way, in an excessive way, in such a way that it's, it would be, I don't know if, if they're prescribed for, certainly in guidelines, they're no longer prescribed for chronic pain at all. And so that leaves people like me who failed other treatments by, in the form of an ulcer in my esophagus and in the form of like, fail them very painfully and can't can't take the other treatments that exist and yet cannot work or manage manage my life it, it removes an option that is is an end of line effective option so uh, how would you support people in that situation honestly i don't know but i would maybe draw if you're if you're trying to find policy development i'd look for example at, at germany where since the cutbacks in, in opioid prescribing in canada and the us the U.S. is now way down in the list of countries of amounts of opioids prescribed. Germany has not yet shown signs of an opioid crisis. They're still prescribed with a lot of restraint, but they have have high overall high, relatively high rates of, of opioid prescribing now. So obviously the rates will also relate to how many people are in pain. And we're looking at a mass disabling event with COVID often associated with, with pain. So you're, you're, as a population increases, as social and work conditions and public health management conditions result in people with painful conditions, a proportion of those will be appropriately prescribed opioids. That is a maybe a small proportion. But if the numbers are large of people in pain, then obviously it'll be more people. So, okay, so that doesn't really answer how you actually support people who are suffering in, in it. And honestly, I don't know. It's that it has to come from policy changes. It has to come from people having compassionate medical care, but in most cases, the opioid isn't necessary. But where it is, honestly, I don't, I don't know. That's a tragic and difficult situation to be left with no option. It most certainly is, and I wondered. So, having read your book, you gave us a lot of great examples of of people who had been affected once their pain medications were taken away. But you also talked about some programs in Canada, in particular like Dr. X is somebody you mentioned in your book, where doctors are working to treat all patients by giving them what they're asking for, essentially, and by trying to know, is that not correct? So that particular doctor is doing, so that's specifically with people who use illicit drugs. So those are people who are dependent on fentanyl or other illicit fentanyl. And it's taking the opioid substitution to its logical extreme and an effective extreme. If you're dependent on a particular medication and you can't function without that medication, what you need is that medication. So for people, for example, people who would like to not be, to to get off the illicit drug train or whatever, but who are now dependent on high, high, high doses of opioids because of the contamination of heroin with which, you know, resulted in overdoses, but not routinely, not constant deaths. You're, you're de- the pe- these people are now, because it was contaminated with illicit fentanyl and in unknown doses, people are now dependent on incredibly high doses. So going, trying to use methadone, for example, simply 
for many people simply isn't adequate. It doesn't touch it. And they're left in constant withdrawal, which means being constantly physically sick. So that doctor prescribed, prescribed fentanyl patches, which is a pain treatment, and is prescribing them to someone who that is the way to, that is the only way this person can get off illicit drugs, which are likely to kill her, to a pharmaceutical opioid, which will not kill her. So, um, so it is not a free-for-all. It is not, and particularly for pain patients, it has become extremely difficult to, so it, it is not like a situation, and I don't advocate a situation where you go to your doctor and ask for whatever you want. It has to be a process, a really thoughtful process with a trusted doctor who has the freedom to prescribe what they believe their patient needs. And what? again, opioids would be a last resort. Would something like what Dr. X is doing, though, by prescribing fentanyl patches, do you know, I guess this is where my knowledge is very limited, right? Because I haven't been studying the opiate. I haven't been studying opioids for years, and I'm not a professional journalist in the way that you are. Would that be something that would exist here in the U.S. where we are? It would be, would it be illegal? It would be a no right now because you've clamped down on prescribing for pain so very stringently. So doctors are afraid to prescribe because of involvement of the criminal justice system. Of being, it's, it's, it's a very difficult situation. Now, the, that resulted from CDC 2016 guidelines on the treatment of chronic pain, which are now being revised. And the last I saw, I'm not sure if it's passed now, but the last I saw of the revised guidelines had some very good aspect, not not completely, but it's some very good aspects in moving towards a system that is more about the individual, more individualized for the individual patient, which would allow, in certain circumstances, would allow opioids to be prescribed and certainly not to be for, for patients who are on dependent on opioids or whose pain is being treated by opioids for them not to be, be forced off them. So that might, so it might change in the future, but at the moment, your only options for opioid dependence are buprenorphine, which is difficult to prescribe, but, but can be prescribed, and methadone. And so expanding those, access to those is very important at the moment. But my point, I guess, in, in mentioning the way it's done and that's routine, that the hair prescription, heroin prescription in, uh, in Switzerland, for example, for people who are dependent on that, that drug, it, it is routine. In Portugal, I spoke to people who were on methadone for a period and then went, and then, so we're off heroin, went on to methadone, and then have gone back to occasional non-dependent recreational use of heroin, of inhaled heroin. There's many ways in which you can get stability, but honestly, the substitution therapies work extremely well for people who are very dependent on the drug and and 12-step and inpatient detox treatment works very badly in that you're at extraordinarily high risk of overdose and and dying as a result that's why so many people come out of jail and die of overdose because they've been detoxed not because it's because they were not on the drug that they're likely to die okay so i guess then just ex- supporting access and supporting more understanding would be good for a layman? It's very hard to just say a, like a, a short prescription. It really is. I think opposing prohibition-based policies, which in the U.S. are really the drug enforcement agency, they're very, very based on a, a way of thinking that has nothing to do with what is best for an individual person or an individual patient. So I think getting the DEA out of medicine would be a very strong priority. And I think 
looking at the impacts of criminalization and restricted access on, on different communities would be very important. But it's a very complicated thing. I think always, I try to always point out the way in other, the US is a, is a bit of a bubble and the way there are effective medications for opioid addiction, op opioid use disorder, like they're effective, they, they work and the current policies don't work. So trying to point that out, that it is not as it sound, these sound like radical policies, prescription heroin, or, and it sounds like I'm advocating, oh, everyone should be able to walk into the convenience store and, and buy some heroin to shoot up. Of course I'm not. But there are other systems that actually are effective in allowing people to, instead of having that downward spiral that is more about poverty and criminalization than anything else, people are able to have stable lives from which they can then decide whether they're able, whether maintenance, take continuing to take stable doses of, of the drug or tapering off, which one is going to, is going to be more feasible for them. But meanwhile, they can get on with their lives. At one point in your book, I believe that you say, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, that we punish the drugs that the U.S. is prescribing right now are designed, it sounded like, this could be wrong, it designed to punish addicts, it, it seemed, or the, the prescriptions that were surviving to help addicts deal with addiction. Yeah, the, um, so it's not, methadone is a, is a great, is a very good medication, it works, although it's maybe not up to the extraordinarily high doses of, of fentanyl that people are taking, but it's a good drug. Buprenorphine is a good drug in the sense that they, they work. They have like any other drug, they have side effects and benefits. But the way we set it up is very difficult. It's comp it's onerous for doctors to prescribe buprenorphine, although I believe that's changing in different places. So that's made difficult. And for methadone, if the if the goal of of not being tied to the illicit market is for you to get back to normal life, normal relationships, cooking dinner, shopping, groceries, and work. If, the, if those are the goals, then a system where you have to go every single day and line up with other, other poor people in while at a pharmacy while people treat you badly and you have, and then have your urine checked, be constantly having to haggle to get to get access to the thing if something if the wrong thing's found in your urine, whether it's a correct or not correct positive, the, like all of those things make it impossible to live a normal life. And so you, people are surprised that you, you're no longer shooting heroin, but you're, you're still not living like sort of a middle-class life. Um, well, they make it impossible. And there's actually no reason during the pandemic access to take-home methadone was made easier in the U.S. and Canada, and nothing happened. Nothing terrible happened. It is possible to treat people who use drugs like adults. And the way we take other medications that it can be extraordinarily dangerous if you overdose them, including Tylenol, acetaminophen. We, we, there's a certain amount of trust that's required and a certain amount of education of patients on what the risks are, so that not to punish them, not to scare them, but to allow them to manage them. So yeah, I think all of that's, that's possible. Thank you. Thank you for proposing that, because it was, it was very new to me, and I appreciate it. Okay, we have just a few other questions left, and I think you kind of already answered some of them. So we wanted to know more about how you summarize the contextual complexities surrounding opioids for an audience whose live ha lives haven't been touched by opioids. Or at least like, I know my life has been touched in the periphery by opioids, I guess in ways that I'm not comfortable sharing on air probably, because they're not always my experiences. But I myself haven't 
dealt with it. And I imagine many, many of our listeners probably haven't had any personal experience with opioids. So you're a journalist, when you're writing about these, how do you, how do you synthesize that context? I mean, I think always the movement between the subjective and the very micro and the contextual and factual and macro is so important. So I really try to first bring people into my own mind, my own experience, and from there, then open out. Because I don't, as you see, as I'm, as I'm trying to answer these questions, I get, get, I find it very hard to synthesize, but it's not an elevator speech. And actually understanding in the sense that there's an actual understanding both of facts and where, where there's mis, simply factual misconceptions, and then getting through the emotions that are attached to them that make it very hard to, to be willing to see, oh, that's actually wrong. And there's a better way of dealing with this that would be more effective. I think you have to do that from inside. You have to actually experience some of this. So I think that's been my strategy. It's very hard to synthesize. I mean, I've got a, you know, I wrote back cover copy for my book and that's possible. You can make it short, but it doesn't, the actual convincing of of making people really understand and feel compassion for other people. And it's not simply compassion. It's not like feeling sympathy for someone. It's feeling, it's understanding that those, the people who use illicit drugs are, they're articulate adult people who've had a whole range of circumstances in in their lives and had and made a whole bunch of choices, some of which are, life-affirming and intelligent choices given the, you know, given the situation, the options available to them. So being able to have that kind of respect for another person, that's really humanizing them. And that's what I, I try to do rather than having people simply feel bad for, for them. I don't think that's good enough. And the same thing with people with pain, understanding that they're not whiny children, that it's, again, it's people dealing with a very specific physical thing that they experience and responding in ways that that makes sense given that. So yeah, you have to take someone inside to be able to appreciate that, I think. Thank you. I don't want to give too much of your book away for listeners, but in your book, you do, at one point, you talk about how, even though you're describing this for us, we're not going to be able to understand because it's your personal experience. And so because it's not ours, we're never going to be able to fully live it. And I'm paraphrasing again. So feel free to connect me if that understanding is wrong. No, no, it's exactly right. I think there are limits. And those are the limits where trust becomes important. You have, I mean, in, in the doctor patient relationship, if the person, if you're constantly trying to find a, an objective measure of pain, it's never going to work. You ultimately, it's not relevant whether the pain is in the person's head, in their their neural pathways in their in their actual part of the body that's hurting like I see people trying to explain over and over the physical mechanisms of different types of pain it's totally irrelevant to someone's experience of it it might not be re- it might not be irrelevant to how you're going to treat it but ultimately there is going to have there has to be a certain appreciation for people's own experience and you can't keep second guessing that and the same thing with, with people who use illicit drugs. Often people are dishonest because the situation is set up for them to be dishonest because they're punished for telling the truth. And so if you are able to be less judgmental about people's lives, then they're able to, and less, um, less punitive, like in a, in, a medical, in a medical system, then they're able to be honest, which can result in in far better care that actually responds to what they're actually taking, what they're actually care about. But trying to trying to force that when there's no trust is, is impossible. And the trust has to come first from the people with power. 
that's a there's all there's an expectation that the people who have a long history of difficult experience, and this is both pain patients and people who use illicit drugs, that there's an expectation that they have to be honest first or they have to be open first. And honestly, the it's it's the onus is on the person with power to to be trustworthy. Thank you. I want to be cognizant of your time, and I've realized that we have gone over an hour. So I just have one last question for you. And this was from Maggie, who was writing her questions in the midst of great pain for some context. So she wanted to know if you had any advice for her or our listeners, for people who are suffering from chronic pain, but might feel anxiety over the fact that they've been offered opioids as a pain management option. You talk a little bit about suffering kind of for the sake of suffering. And that was something I think that is very resonant. That was something that kind of resonated with both of us. And so I was wondering, we were wondering if you had any advice for people who might be dealing with that. Yeah, it seems like in the US, you're fairly unlikely to be just offered an opioid out of the blue. No, like this would be for people maybe who have have gone to the doctor quite a lot and have a trusted relationship. If you have a trusted relationship, I would ask them to tell you more about it and particularly to address the the likelihood of dependence, of physical dependence, which is not the same as addiction, but to address what you will do at the if you're taking an opioid long-term. First of all, I would insist that it's at a, you, you would ask them, please start me on a very low dose with the expectation that we'll work up gradually to see, to find an effective dose. And if side effects aren't tolerable, you'll try a different one where it may be tolerable. But I'd also ask, what is the plan for when you become tolerant to a specific dose? Or what is the long-term plan? Are you planning to be on this for the rest of your life? Is the plan to try it for a year? Because if you are trying it for a year and then you're stopping, that's not going to be easy. So are you going to tape? How are you going to taper off it? What sort of support will you be offered? If the plan is for you to take it long-term, then you and your doctor better be agreeing on that, that that's going to happen. And what will happen, like how, do, how are you going to manage dependence? It's an expected side effect, not a kind of a gotcha, you look, you're addicted now. It's, a, it's something that happens. It means that your body's no longer producing its own endogenous morphine and it needs that opioid, your, your endogenous opioid system controls many functions in your body. And so when, if, when you are in withdrawal, when you're not taking it, when your body's expecting it, all those functions are not are not working, and it's it's completely disabling. So, incapacitating. So there has to be there should be a trust, you know, a, a plan that acknowledges the reality that with long term use you will become dependent. You could also t- discuss ways of reducing that likelihood by occasional taking and uh, opioid sparing. Call it like so. They'll take it once a week at, at a low dose and things like that. I don't know. The doctors are always clear. They're either a little bit like. This is going to be a disaster for you. It'll instantly cause addiction. Or this is, don't worry, there won't be, a, nothing's going to happen. But their dependence is a reality. And so talking about how to manage it would be, and whether it's worth it to you. Are there other alternatives you could try? What would those be? Can you manage? What are your goals? What are you hoping? How, what level of function are you hoping for or pain relief? Okay, thank you. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? And then if, if there is or after, do you want to give us all places where we can follow you and maybe plug any upcoming work if you have any? Sure. I, I don't know what else I would want to say. There were a lot, all your questions got at all these multiple issues. And I know I sort of struggled. I think I do a better job in, in the book of making it go down easy. So, so I hope people seek it out. I'm on most active on Twitter at, Car- at Carlin's Warren. So anything 
you know, I put new articles that I write and, and things up there. And I have a website that's my full name.com, carlinswarenstein.com. And yeah, I'm working on, on uh, nonfiction and fiction right now. And I hope to eventually have something, something out there, but I'm doing journalism ongoing. So I hope people will find me. Yes, please follow and please buy the book. It was a wonderful book. And I hope that this interview gave you all just a little bit of a taste of it. It completely changed my whole understanding of how we deal with drugs in this country. And I thought that I was well-educated before, but I'm not. So (laughs) thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm going to go ahead and tell our listeners bye. And so bye. Thanks so much. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebel girls book club on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gaze. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.